0: It's often said that today, everybody is a photographer. And while it's certainly true that people take more pictures today than ever, I don't agree that this makes everyone a photographer. Everyone is also typing more, be it on their phone or tablet or computer, but that doesn't mean they're a writer, even with autocorrect enabled. Pressing a button may create a picture, but it's what happens afterwards that defines the work and the person that created it. While social media has its role, it still prints, exhibitions, and books that allow the photographer to clearly define why their work is worthy of attention. Though photographer Gus Powell is known for his street photography, it's been his books that have established him as a unique voice in today's photographic world. He is willing to experiment and even challenge what a book of photography should and can be. Resulting in titles that do more than just showcases work.
1: You can't you can't just take your thirty five super strong pictures and turn them into something. In some ways, it's overpowering. You know, a, a symphony that's full of tubas is exhausting. <laughs> but when a tuba lands, you know, when the kettle drum gets hit, the cymbal clashed. That's. An exciting moment. So, thinking about things in a in a musical sense, thinking about things that have a a beginning, a middle, and an end, and that what if the most important part of this book is the connective tissue? You know, the thing that joins the pictures together.
0: We'll talk to Gus about how studying comparative religions in college informed his photography, and how he came to embrace the genre of street photography. This is Ibarian X. And welcome back to the Candid Frame. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to finally get you on the show. To start off with, I, I, when I was doing my research for, uh, about you, I was really uh, curious about one thing: is that when you were in college, you studied comparative religions, and it was like, okay, how did you come to study? That Because you're known largely as being a photographer. So I was like, okay, how did you come to be interested in that?
1: You know, when I, when I went to college, you know, I, and I, I had an arts background and I went to Oberlin College, which is a very creative place. And I had every expectation of being a, a studio art major. You know, I started taking those classes and, and being in that space. And then it was that first semester, and I think everyone has this experience. You know, it, it's it, sometimes it's not necessarily the what you're studying, but who you're studying with. Mm. And I and I took this uh, this one small colloquium class is what they called it there, which was kind of like a seminar class. It was, you know, twelve students. And it was about mystical poetry, Sufi poetry. And it was with an amazing professor uh, named uh, James Morris, who I still have a, a relationship with. And and across this class, you know, we were reading these poems by Hafez and Rumi and all these people. And this teacher was also at the same time showing us uh, popular culture films. Fisher King, The, the Wim Vendors, Wings of Desire, uh, Groundhog Day, you know, and then he started talking about these poems and putting them into a context of their present moment when they were actually created. And that these poets were kind of like the musicians and the filmmakers of their time. And this class just kind of blew my mind also because it did the high low thing so beautifully, you know, we're, we're we're reading these things that are kind of precious texts in some cultures, but then we're looking at, you know, a movie with, you know, Groundhog Day, you know, which is about reincarnation for sure and trying to get it right and trying to get closer to the beloved and trying to, if you think of each day as an opportunity to do the best you can, what do you do with that day, you know, and then if you think of this as a, a that film itself as a, a spiritual text in some way, something that you leave from that changes the way you live your life. And for me, you know, just what was happening in that class and the amount of creativity that was being brought from the students and that was being asked of the students, it was inherently a more creative space than going into an art class, especially at that time, which was such a postmodern moment. You know what I mean? You could appropriate and rejigger and then support what you were making in that visual space with a kind of postmodern veneer. And you were in the game, but you weren't necessarily giving anything from yourself. And I think that's what I wanted to do. So to be in a religious, you know, a religion class, but it felt like an art class because it felt like for me, the the path of the artist is trying to express something from deep within you, trying to relate to the space that's around you and to other human beings and trying to move all of that forward. And that was happening in these religion classes, but it wasn't really happening in the art classes. So, I kept, again, not knowing, I just kept returning to these religion classes. You know, and with no, it's like I didn't want to be a priest. I was raised Roman Catholic and all this stuff, but it wasn't a part of my path. But I think the path of, well, you know, there was a very specific thing. You know, a lot of religions sort of, you, the way you sort of break them down is you think of ground, path, and goal, right? Ground is what's the nature of the space we're in, what's the goal. Is it enlightenment for, for one, for all, for everyone? And then what's the path? How do we get from where we are to there? So just thinking of that as practical information to deal with everyday life and then combining that with an artistic practice was something that resonated with me. And and the clarity of that work and that use of creative thinking and drawing from personal experience and from lived experience, the way that was unfolding in these religion classes was way more powerful than anything that was happening in the art classes. So I just kept taking those classes. And then you get to that point, you know, beginning of junior year, you got to name a major here. And it's like, well, I've taken a lot of these religion classes and these teachers are amazing. So I guess I got to pick that. So I ended up being a comparative religion major, studio art minor. I kept doing the studio art classes, but a lot of them were actually, I started doing uh, a lot of private readings. So I do a photo and writing class that I would create with a poetry teacher. And then it would be still called a, an art class and give me credit in that department. You know, so I mean, I kept having that practice, but you know, and then by the end of it, supposedly, you know, my, my father cracked up and says like, what's this? You're a comparative religion major (laughs) with a concentration in comparative mysticism. And it's like, it's like, all right, you know, but but it really has served me, I feel like it served me well. And for me, it, it was my version of being an art major.
0: It makes complete sense because I think that by studying the way that you did, you just, it's kind of analogous to any approach to mysticism. You realize there are a myriad of different ways to get to that goal, right? While in traditional art, art study, it's about singular methods, you know, trying to sort of Get into each student, okay, here's the basic methodology that you have to practice. This is the only way you can get there. You can create variations thereof, but it seems like, okay, there's only a a fixed singular path for you to walk. And you basically learned that isn't necessarily true that you don't have to particularly approach art in that way.
1: Absolutely. You know, and and again, and it really was that first teacher doing this highlight because this was a super revered you know, professor internationally in terms of uh, Sufi, you know, tradition and, you know, you know, incredibly respected translator, but the fact that he was so high, low about it too. I mean, literally giving us these texts, you know, with, with very specific translations, but then having us look at Groundhog Day and use, and having us look at a, you know, vendors film, you know, and us talking about the specific lyrics of a, even a Nick Cave song in the film and giving that, you know, credibility that that's you know this is an artist in that time trying to sort of express something and 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 then and then he would then fold it back he said you got to understand you know we we revere these these poets for you know because they're now on a pedestal but the reality is they were the Kurt Cobains of their moment you know these were pop songs that were happening and they were in they were made in opposition to people who were sort of studying these big heavy texts and it's like well what if i just sing you a line that says You know, in the time of our Lord, there are fragrant breezes. Watch out and be prepared to receive them. Like I heard that and it was like, that's kind of photography. We walk around looking for the fragrant breeze to see if we can smell a little bit of paradise and see if we can catch it so that we remember what that's like. And so that we can transmit that to others and say, there is, there's something bigger than what's right in front of us. But there's a little piece of it right here.
0: You know, your dad was a filmmaker and your, your mom was a fashion designer both very creative outlets. Do you think that this time in college really kind of freed you and made you more comfortable in terms of finding your own means of being creative?
1: I think to a degree. Yes. I mean, the reality is I come from a, uh, you know, I, you know, I'm this six foot five white guy from midtown Manhattan, you know, with parents who had creative lives and all of this, you know, privilege that, and then an only child on top of that, you know, so in terms of the levels that I um, was supported, encouraged to express myself creatively, that was always there. You know, so when I got to college, I think what, what happened is it became this moment of knowing that, you know, this is the space I work in. You know, I, I, I come from people who are makers and who are creatives. But I think like every kid, you try to find your own toolbox to hopefully deploy that stuff, you know, and and in many ways, I keep as I in some ways, I feel like I'm slowly migrating towards a film practice in some ways. But I think it was a very conscious decision to turn towards the still image away from film as a way to sort of carve out an own space for myself, uh, as opposed to sort of continuing something that my father was doing or but then you know, like what's happening recently is I'm doing lots of fashion work too (laughs) uh, with photography. And so now I'm kind of going back to some of a lot of that education that came from my mother as well, you know, in, in terms of looking oh, at fashion and thinking about that. So, you know, in some ways I don't know that college, you know, I think for some people college is this moment where you really get to sort of be who you are and you get to really deploy your own set of decisions and actions. I, I, I was very much encouraged to do that right from the beginning. So college, I think in many ways, just the fact that I had the idea or the impulse and then the willingness and encouragement to embrace studying religion rather than political science or medicine or all these other things. I think that it it, it gave me that space. And then Oberlin specifically, the the thing that was the biggest uh, influence at that school is because it's this music conservatory, you know, it's the oldest music conservatory in in the country. And I'm not a musical person, but I had many friends who are musicians. So to be around people who have that type of focus and passion you know, who discovered the French horn when they were six and and it's French horn do or die for their whole life, you know, and to see their dedication to work. And that was something that really stuck with me at, at Oberlin, I think, and at college was seeing that type of dedication.
0: What spurred you to want to use the, the camera as opposed to say writing or poetry?
1: As a kid who was always, uh, I was given a lot of independence, you know, so I would go out on the street and I'd walk around and, 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 uh, Early on, I got obsessed with with picking up stuff. You know, I was obsessed with with finding, you know, like a glove, a workman's glove that had gotten run over by a car thirty seven times. You know, and it's now stuck in a specific gesture. You know, a hubcap that got crushed that now looked like a a flattened hat. And I would I used to collect all these things. I just that was what I did. I was into, and I'd bring these things home. and And at a certain point, there was, you know, my parents were pretty encouraging about this practice. But at a certain time, it was just like, you know. You, you, you can't keep bringing all this stuff home. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, because there were cameras around, and, and my father was very well, you know, here, take this, you know, S670 Polaroid and, and go out. And I, and I think it was the realization that you could use the camera to collect things, that you could go out and have an experience. And it was another way of bringing things back from outside space to share with others without picking up a bunch of trash. You know, so, I mean, I think so many of us, you know, when you start taking pictures, I always think of those kind of photo one things. Where you take a picture of your sink, take a picture of your cat, you take a picture mm-hmm. of you know a trash can, and then maybe you start to work towards people and humanity. So I think that same practice was what unfolded for me, going out into the world at first, taking pictures of the types of things that I might want to pick up and bring home, but then using it to discover more.
0: Yeah, the, the first body of work that I was familiar with was the stuff that you did during your uh, lunch breaks. Yeah, yeah. You know, when you only have like 15 or 20 minutes to go out and make photographs. And I think that's a really interesting way of cutting your teeth in terms of becoming a photographer, just because you're limited by time and having such a tight restriction really demands that you go beyond the mechanics of the camera to learning how you actually see. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that time for you in terms of what you were creating, because I know you weren't aware that, that there, there was a genre of street photography. So you were kind of coming in from, you know, from a place where you didn't have the baggage of that legacy. But tell me in terms of what it felt like and what you were thinking of as you were going out making these images during, during this period.
1: Yeah. So, so- it was, uh, you know, the, the camera became extension an extension of myself pretty early in terms of something that I would always have with me and I was making pictures, you know, and then and I've never been someone who had sort of specific shot list or projects that I was working on. I was really really about sort of having a bipedal life where you put one foot in front of the other, and then you have these moments that stand out to you, things that you would point a finger at that you wanted to validate in some way. So beginning to use the camera to do that. But then when I when I sort of got this, I had a, a proper job in the city, as like my friends say in London, sure. and I was working at the New Yorker magazine, and I was making pictures on the way to work, and then on my lunch hour, and then after work. And it was this compression of time and space that you've described that both allowed and forced me to make different kinds of pictures, you know, because some days I I could slide out for 15 minutes. Other days I could be sneaky and find a way to go out for 90 minutes on my lunch hour. But if you go out for 15 minutes and you're looking to, I wasn't looking to describe lunch in New York. I was looking to feel something in that 15 minute moment. So how willing are you? How open can you be to make something out of nothing to make the most of whatever happens in that 15 minutes, you know? So you might see a a couple kiss and there's something in that. But then other days you might just see a group of people waiting for the light to change. So how can you make something with that? And this kind of the, the the constraints, those lines in the sand of like, well, this is it. You've got to feel something and you have to make a picture out of something that's available here right now. It forced me to see more in less, you know? And then what happened is it was actually a, a friend from college sent me this book of Frank O'Hara's lunch poems which were poems that he you know probably not all but in theory he wrote mostly on his lunch hours while working in midtown at the Museum of Modern Art and then supposedly he would go to the Olivetti typewriter showroom on 5th Avenue and he would bang out a poem and then go back to work and and his poems too they they are they you know it's, he's a real New York modernist kind of poet they 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 do shine a light on life that's happening on the streets of New York at that time. But they're really about him feeling something. And for me, this little book and you know, the, the book itself, it's like howl it's one of those city lights books. It's the size of a passport. And I, you know, I, I ate it up, but I kept it with me. I kept it in my pocket because it was the kind of thing that you could. And it was for me, that little book was this sort of passport. It was like, Oh, this is enough. There's enough happening on fifth Avenue and 44th street For six minutes that I can make work in this time and space that could become something, you know, and it really was this sort of license and passport to keep trying to make those pictures. And then it was in turn then getting to meet Joel Meyerowitz and sharing some of that work with him and and his encouragement, who's encouraged so many either directly or indirectly through his work and his voice. But this this is important to go out to see things, to feel things, this relationship to humanity, this expression of yourself, both validating and questioning the life that's around you, all of that's important. You know, And it's, in some ways that this kind of maybe arc, arcs back to thinking about a spiritual practice of ground, path, and goal. Well, what can I do on this lunch hour to not only fill my belly, but to fill my heart and to get wins in my, in my sails to sort of keep believing in... Humanity and, and you know, the shared experience that's all around
0: us. And you speak to the really the the, the great challenge, I think, of any photographer, but, but anyone who um, spends their time uh, in public making photographs. Yeah. Because the initial, the obvious initial experience is simply documenting what's in front of you. But then it's like, well, how do you take these elements that are in front of you that are seemingly chaotic that have no relationship to each other, and you bring them together in the frame, not just to make something that is as aesthetically pleasing, but that expresses something, that communicates something, yeah. and that's I think that's the hard part. So, what was helpful to you to make that sort of that initial leap, and and do you remember a, a seminal image that you felt not, not so much that it was completely successful, but that indicated to you that you were moving in the right direction.
1: Well, there's a couple of things. I feel like I, I'm lucky to have had a, a visual education that began very early, you know, from being a, a privileged New Yorker and a child of artists that, you know, so many, uh, you know, I used to know all the pictures that were the permanent collection at the Museum of Modern Art in the order that they were on the wall in the, the old MoMA. And I saw so many of those images as prints, you know, firsthand, you know, and then I was introduced to lots of books. So I had that education, but for me, and it continues to be true, having a relationship with non-visual practices that try to make these same endeavors, you know, that's why I bring up that Frank O'Hara book to see, Oh, this is somebody else who was just trying to make a living, but also going out into the world and looking at it and then also diving into themselves and then putting it, on paper and then sharing that so that that practice right because you know we you know everybody there's more photographers than ever but we all take notes we all have journals in some capacity but what's the audience what are you trying to transmit thinking about transmission and communication and i think especially with photography that the next thing that comes up is editing right and sequencing so the act of simply making a photograph is an act of editing the world those four corners that's what a camera is more than anything else. It's four corners that you put around something. And do I include that guy or not? You know, do I, you know, do I, this person, you know, I, I think about that image of, uh, from Vietnam, you know, with, or, with, you know, with the, it's right before the, the guy was shot, you know, that picture where you see yeah. all of that. But imagine you saw that picture and you didn't see the gun. It'd be a very different oh. picture. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a very obvious, but like what you include and what you don't include, how you use those four corners in time and space, how you edit the life around you, you know? And then I think of, you know, all of us, all of us who photograph on the street, you know, have hit a parade. Right. But there's a moment when you realize like, Oh, the interesting part of the parade isn't the parade. It's everybody looking at the parade. It's, it's turning it the other direction. You know, there's that great Ouija picture. It's my favorite Ouija picture called their first murder. And there's that, it's a, it's a crowd and there's this one girl leaping up with this grin to look over the older kids. Do you know what I mean? And it, But again, yeah. it's not showing the body. It's showing this response to these things. So I think thinking about that, that sometimes seeing the inciting incident is not a, nearly as telling as seeing the response to something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and at the very least, you have your own response to everything that's happening around you, even if it's if it's not significant as a photographer, you are using the camera to, in some ways, have a response to the life that's around you. So, you know, I think in terms of things that sort of put wind in my sails, I think it's just sensing that I wasn't alone. There is this this bigger tradition of people trying to make sense of the world around them. Mm-hmm. And, and that often the biggest realizations come in, in, in very unsurprising places. You know, it's not, it, 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 this is not a significant moment, you know, the Brissonian decisive moment, how do you decide, you know, that picture, it's a guy walking across the thing. If you had to sort of script that and say, this is going to make for a picture that people will never forget, you never could. You never would, you know. So I think it's this learning to trust oneself that if, if you're true and you have these intentions that are strong and that you really are trying to feel things, you, you have to be yourself. You have to be present in the space. And that's going to enable you to make something. Yeah. It's, you know, the Pulitzer Prize winning pictures, th- those are, are layups. You know, it's the fireman catching the baby. Anybody, that's just about time and space. That's not about heart. That's not about giving something. That's not to discredit those types of pictures, but they're so linked to an inciting incident. And I think that the greatest pictures, I know you recently, you know, were, we're drilling down into the Winogrand, you know, line about, you know, the picture needs to be more interesting than the thing that's there. And and I and I think that's the case, you know, that, that the great pictures are indescribable in, and you never would have known that that's, that's what somebody's going to make from that moment.
0: You yeah. Know? One of the things that I really have appreciated about your work, and that is a big takeaway for me, is that editing can be as much of a creative practice as the actual making of the photographs and it's been really interesting to see your body or work and all its variations in, in, in the various books that you've created, how the relationships of the photographs and as they are laid out in say a book, really become more than a way of showcasing individual photographs. That it becomes not just about you know, just showing your best work or even necessarily about narrative, but that, you know, that an individual image sometimes the it isn't necessary for a singular, singular image to have to hold the weight of the entire experience, the feeling, the themes and the concepts. They can actually bring together images that normally might not have any relationship to each other, but within the context of some sort of compilation, mm-hmm. it does. And I really have enjoyed how you sort of experiment. The one you, that you recently came out with the Manila folder, I thought was just like, "Oh wow, he's really turning things on their ear." Uh, but 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 tell me about this learning process about about discovering that this was a method that you felt you needed to use in order to really fulfill your your yourself as as a photographer and as an artist.
1: Yeah, I think that the the there's been kind of a real clarity for me recently that i think the books i make are the the truest expressions of my artistic practice you know i i I love making you know a a singular strong picture on the street you know and i and i've been grateful to get to do exhibitions as well but it's it's really in the the books that i've made you know the 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 first book you know uh the company of strangers was my version of frank o'hara's lunch poems you know and it's a and 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 I tried to express some of the things that we already talked about, about expressing something about, it's, mm-hmm. it's not about New York, it's not about lunch, it's just about trying to feel something out in time and space and seeing these little relationships. And that one, you know, I, I didn't have a practice, I wasn't sophisticated enough yet to sort of figure out how to make it be more than that, but it's a book I'm proud of. But then what, what sort of happened after that with The Lonely Ones and Family Car Trouble and Brooklyn Brief is this understanding that you often, you can't just take your 35 super strong pictures and turn them into something. It's, it's, in some ways it's overpowering, you know, you can't, you know, a a symphony that's full of tubas is exhausting, (laughs) right? And, but, but when a tuba lands, you know, when the kettle drum gets hit, the cymbal clashed, that's an exciting moment. So thinking about things in a, in a musical sense, thinking about things that have a a beginning, a middle and an end, and that what if the most important part of this book is the connective tissue, you know, the thing that joins the pictures together. Mm -hmm. So, you know, with the lonely ones, which was this interplay of text and image for me, that book kind of lives on the, the folded edge between the scene photograph and the piece of text, you know, and then trying to do something that can only happen in a book to have this physical experience of having to read and then, turn the page and look at the picture and maybe, you know, it it operates like a children's book and gives you a little hit of dopamine, you know, that's this, oh, you know, pleasure. And then you go back to the text and then you turn again, but to not let text and image perform in a didactic way so that there's this kind of pregnant space that, that goes around the whole book, you know, and and then, and then this, this idea of, you know, sequence of, of pictures, it's an introduction. It educates your audience. You know, the the way that you begin uh, uh, that first, the cover, the title, the materials, that first picture is going to be a Rosetta Stone of some kind that will inform your audience how they're supposed to interact uh, with the material that will follow. And then hopefully you disrupt that at some moment. And then you come in with a tuba and a symbol at another time. And then, and then you have space. So to, to sort of embrace what can happen in a book, which is a journey, you know, and also it's, I've been very uh, interested in making smaller books too, you know, with the, with the, the lonely ones work. it was medium format, color photography, you know, it was very much these types of pictures in this kind of uh, vein that could have called for a large format kind of coffee table book, but I knew I didn't want to do that. I wanted to sort of disrupt that material in some capacity. Yeah. And what, and when I made the book, it was such a, a rewarding response, which you know, afterwards it seemed obvious, but, you know, people said, Oh, you know, I read your book last night (laughs) and the book has text in it. So there's that part, but you know, they said, I I read it in bed and it's next, it's on my nightstand. And it's, you know, it's a small little thing and that's part of it. But the way that people relate to a book that they can hold in one hand and turn the page of is different than the way they relate to a coffee table book, their expectations, their, their psychophysical experience of that material. So with each book I've done since then, I've tried to, embrace the the book as a physical object and how that immediately sets the stage for the experience of the reader and then how to to use that to my advantage and then also in some cases how to disrupt that. You know, so even with the lonely ones, you know, having this, you know, some people I had a you know I have a whole commercial practice too. I had a meeting at an ad agency the other day and I put the books out. You know, it always happens somebody picks up the lonely ones and they just Flip through it and they only see text and they are confused and then they just drop it down. And he said, "Well, no, you, you, you got to actually." It's I said this. I don't know if you have time for it, but it's like you got to open every one. And then they slow down. They immediately slow down. And then they maybe even sit down. And they're like, "Oh, this requires that," you know. And then with family car trouble too is you know very much wanting to figure out a way to use all this family work. Many of those pictures are are not even necessarily particularly strong, single standing pictures. But as a collective experience, this sort of trifecta of family, car, trouble, and then pivoting on language, you know, there's the family car and then there's car trouble and then there's family trouble to set the stage with that. And then to have the book be in the format of a novel with a dust jacket, with blurbs, you know, and all of that so that that's the way that someone who picks it up, oh, I know how to read a novel. So, oh, but this isn't a novel. But then they still apply that type of thinking. Oh, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. They they use those skills. And then again, most recently with Brooklyn Brief, which was just you know Roman numerals has been a really uh, they're a really fun publisher and they're doing interesting stuff. But and we wanted to collaborate on something. And I had registered that I'd been making all these pictures in downtown Brooklyn over the years, where you always see people carrying. A folder, an envelope, because that's where the, the courts are and that's where the, the Department of Buildings is. And and people come out of the subway and they always are you know, you see them holding it almost seems medieval if you think about the way we're so linked. They're holding this proof of something mm-hmm. that they need to use to either get something or defend, you know. So wanting to do something with those those pictures where you just you know, we all have our different things that we take. You know, I see anytime I see somebody carrying flowers on the street, I take a picture because there's a story. They're they're saying I love you. They're saying I'm sorry. They're saying get well. You know, there's the object implies a narrative, and the same right. way seeing these people in downtown Brooklyn carrying these folders, it's a very different narrative. And often you see the worry in faces, and then you see the schlumpy lawyers. So wanting to sort of combine that material and and think about that object, and then have the book itself mimic that. You know, so let's make the book be a manila folder, and let's put it in an envelope. So it kind of folds back in on itself of Mm -hmm. as the object that's actually being observed in public space. So in each case, it's, you know, I, I I really do. I want the books to be objects that take advantage of, uh, existing types of reading existing types of communication, and then to use that to my advantage and then hopefully also to, to subvert it in some way and also to try and not just make, you know, a monograph of, of, uh, you know, 36 amazing singular images can be great. But it's also, it doesn't necessarily, it's not symphonic, you know, it's not necessarily narrative, it's just, it's loud.
0: Every couple of weeks, I get an email showing interest in advertising on the show. Without reading the entire email, though, it's pretty easy to determine that they've never listened to an episode. It's like they found us using a Google search and sent out an email. Even when it's photo related, they are more concerned with the size of the audience than anything about what makes what we do different and special. So many other podcasts and YouTube channels focus on gear because that kind of content gets the big numbers. When new equipment is released, They're all in a race to get the episodes up first because those numbers impact their bottom line. It doesn't matter that they're all sharing the same information. Now, I'm not dissing any of those people because that's that's how monetization works and that's how the game is played. I just don't wanna chase that dragon. I'd rather make a show that I wanna make. Just like when I started, I I want to create a show that I would want to listen to and you are helping me to do that with your support. And if you haven't done so yet, you can do that today by becoming a Patreon supporter and contributing a monthly donation of $5 or more a month. A couple of hundred people are helping me to produce a show that is listened to by thousands all over the world. And if you like the way we've been doing things, we could really do with your support. Sign up today by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. Thanks. I get so many books coming through here. It's like you said. It's it's each demands a different experience. I have some books that are I get that are really oversized, and it's like the only way I can really experience them properly is I have to you know set it up. I have to get at my desk. No, not even my desk. I have to go to my kitchen table. You know. Yeah. To to be able to go through it. Then there are much smaller books that I can sit in my chair and, and experience. And uh, it's really kind of fascinating how I have to sort of prepare myself for how I'm going to experience this, yeah. this work. It's really kind of really fascinating to see how the book and its design really informs the ultimate experience.
1: And it's also what's your comfort level, too. You know, like if you're sitting in your, co- your cozy chair looking at something as opposed to standing at the kitchen island, mm-hmm. your psychophysical space is in a different place. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, the fact that, that, that people could look at something like a small book that you could, you could actually decide to carry it with you and look at it on the subway later on, as opposed to the tombstone, yeah. uh, the yeah. big yeah. ones, you know, and, and that's not, you know, there's, there's some big books that I think really work, but a lot of the times it, it's, it doesn't necessarily need to be that, that scale, but that's that, that thing too. I mean, there was a photographer who, you know, when I was working on the, the first book and deciding whether or not to make it happen. And, you know, and he said, well, you know, he's like, I've done a bunch of shows, but I've I've hardly ever heard anything back. Every book that I've done, they go out into the world and people have, they find them and they find the people that they're meant for. And that's, that's, that's this experience that I think is really special. You know, it's wonderful to do shows. And I think all of us have had great moments in gallery spaces and museum spaces, but that's a different act of, of pilgrimage as opposed to, you know, finding a book that feels as if it was made for you and being able to experience it at the moment in time when you're ready for it, as opposed to walking through the threshold of an institution, having that experience and leaving, they both have their values. But I think something that is, you know, the books that Are amazing. I think you know. There's just nothing like uh, becoming friends with a book. (laughs) Oh
0: yeah, yeah. I'm gonna go um, uh, uh, go and photograph the uh, old public library that I used to go to as a kid, where I got my first library card. Because I really photographed it. So I'm gonna go by there soon, and and it's. I don't think it's even a public library anymore, but I still want to photograph the building.
1: Did you have a spot there?
0: Oh yeah, yeah. I had a section. It, yeah. That I wish I, could, I wish it was still a library because I you know I've published like I have half, t- half a dozen books, and yeah. that was a library that as a kid, I would go down the aisle and imagine where my book would be in the stacks.
1: 100 percent.
0: Yeah, because was like in, even as a kid, I wanted to to have a book published. And I was thinking, okay, oh, here's, here's where my name would be.
1: That's where you're going to live. That's your real estate. Yeah, yeah these, are gonna ha- these two are going to have to move over a little for you to get in. I mean, I know exactly what you're talking about.
0: Yeah. yeah. So one of the things you just talked about are the, are the shows. And so much of your work, as you said, is dedicated for, for, for books. They have an experience with a book. So what's the challenge in terms of translating that when the work is going to be exhibited on a, on a wall?
1: It's hard. I mean, I'm in the, I'm I'm doing a couple shows of family car trouble that are coming up. We're going to do one in San Francisco uh, in April and then another one in Milan in November. And it it actually becomes that moment of transition. I'm I'm right in it right now in terms of thinking about it. And it's challenging for me, you know, and there's a couple sides of it too, because in some ways, you know, all this stuff takes energy and resources, you know, I mean, I'm sure you know as well, you know, the, the amount of money and work it takes to produce a book, the amount of money and work it takes to produce a show, in some cases, the return on the book space seems way clearer to me. You know, the exhibition moment, it, it, it's, uh, the math on it is more complicated. But mm-hmm. what, what but what is interesting about it, and I was just speaking with, uh, uh, getting some feedback from a wonderful photographer uh, named Elizabeth Bick, who, she's a great street photographer. She wouldn't use that term, but she's a great student of, of movement in public space. And what she brought up, what in terms of thinking about the exhibition space, is you have to think about where the pictures are, are on the wall and how people move in the space. Mm, yeah. And for me, that was like, it, I got the little tingle, you know. It's like, oh, yeah, it's it's like creating a living street scene. And that, all of a sudden, that charge of thinking about the experience of people moving and how they can migrate from one space to the other, you know, in the books, I try to control that because you know, everyone picks up a book and they flip it from back to front initially yeah. anyways. And then they decide to commit like, Oh, this one, I'm going to have, this is a story I need to start at the beginning and go through it. But in a gallery space, you know, they walk it. there's a, there's an entrance and an exit and then there's the bathroom. And then if it's the opening, there's the bar. And, and that dictates what that initial movement is. And then it might be crowded or uncrowded. So thinking about, The physical experience of a potential viewer, I think, is interesting. And then also trying to, I mean, again, I'm in the thick of this right now with Family Car Trouble, thinking about what were the objectives that, what were the, the, the desires that I wanted to have manifest in the book? And now think about those again, and how can I make those manifest in an exhibition space? As opposed to just, okay, we can translate the book. This is the beginning, the middle, and the end. Put them in a line. Mm-hmm. Take the greatest hits, make some bigger than others, and and you're kind of done. But how can I actually take the original intentions and then use the opportunities that can only happen? The same way I try to use things that can only happen in a book, how can I try and, and make things that can only happen in a gallery space happen and use those? Um, so being able to play with scale is, is interesting. Being able, you know with family car trouble, so much of it is, is sort of a, uh, a stereo opportunity you know there's page left page right and these moments happen whereas in a gallery space you can have all a whole group of pictures up on a wall that can be performing in some capacity and you can just even just triptychs is the thing i'm thinking about a lot with family car trouble in terms of the gallery space because the whole book itself is in essence uh about these three competing elements but there's only two pages on a spread and i and i use those very consciously in a specific way but what about, you know, working with triptychs in a specific way? So again, it's this thing of uh, trying to go back to what the heart of the intention was in the book. Then forget about how you deployed it within the book, but then think about how you can uh, take advantage of a physical space. And then I yeah. love this this thing that, you know, Elizabeth Vick was talking about, about it's, you know, think about how people
0: are going to move through it. That, that that's, that's a lovely gift of wisdom, because I think a lot of people get tied into how things are done traditionally. And sometimes that just doesn't work for the work. I, I and also in- we've all
1: seen it too. I mean, it's, you know, we've all been like, here's the row of prints, you know, with the big frames and the mats and the whole thing. And
0: it's just. Yeah, because that's designed for, and it has a particular intent in mind that has nothing to do with the expression of the work. That's basically putting up uh, commodities up on a wall in the hopes of selling them, not for necessarily creating an experience.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And it's and it's tricky, though, too, because it is costly to do these shows, you know. And uh, so as an artist, you know, if you're lucky enough to to sell a bunch, great. But if you're lucky enough just to sell a few that cover the cost of the whole thing, that's also great. But getting stuck with a bunch of framed prints is uh, has its own, uh, you know, pleasures and joys. But uh,
0: what's interesting about your work is because even though you're sometimes called a street photographer, your work is really beyond that you know like your family car trouble is a very personal exploration it's more documentary of anything else but you do commercial work so in in terms of how you know these people come to you and because they want you to use your your sensibility for the purposes of being able to market something that they that's important to them tell me how that sort of that sort of such a personal way of seeing and shooting translates when the, the people who who want to use you, you know, have a clear goal in mind. It's not just about producing some aesthetically nice photographs. It's really being used as as a device in order to sell and market something. So how does that how does that translate?
1: Well, you know, part of my whole spiel, you know, even when I do my portfolios and things, t- sort of trying to present myself for commercial and editorial work is that, you know, the DNA of who I am is a street photographer, and you know that's this term that I'm sure has been discussed endlessly on the Candid Frame and in many other places. It's 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 actually a pretty limp phrase. It doesn't actually mean something very specific, and every and it has yeah. different meanings to different people. You know, yeah. but that but this idea of stepping out into the world and believing that something's going to happen, and if it, even if it doesn't happen, I'm going to make something out of what's out here, whatever it is, whether it's a plastic bag. Mm-hmm. Blowing in the wind, people kissing, somebody falling, a white elephant marching, whatever it is. So this idea of being able, willing, and desiring to make something out of nothing that will be inscribed with feeling and hopefully credibility of some kind as well is, is what I try to bring to a situation. Then when that gets introduced into a practice where you're you're delivering that, the rules are still the same. But but what happens is, you know, when we normally go out the door, you you have a, a mathematic equation you know, X plus Y minus Z to the third power will equal a good photograph. And when you usually walk out, most of those variables are not fixed. It's all open. Sunlight fills one of them or another day rain does, you know, your own temperament, you know, drops into another, all of these things. But when you're doing a job, a couple of those variables are now fixed. And in some ways that's actually a great asset because, okay, now I don't have to look for somebody interesting. That's the person who. Is going to be interesting, yeah. but where where will they be interesting, and what should they be wearing, and and what is the what's the overall mood? So it, what happens is you start to sort of have. Normally, you go out and you're trying to control 27 things, and it's actually, I mean, I love working because now I don't have to control as many things. A couple of things are already determined for me, and now I still have to make the most and make an interesting picture out of it. Mm-hmm. But there's some lines in the sand that can be useful, you know. And, and the biggest. Part of it, though, that follows from this is the editing, right? Um, you know, especially work that I do that sort of is, uh, that has a connection to fashion. You know, I make pictures in those moments where I am sort of aping acceptable, passable, perfectly fine fashion photography. Um, and the model's doing their thing where they look like a model and they know the left side of their face and this is the look that's their go-to look. Mm-hmm. And we make those pictures and those pictures, they look good. They're perfectly serviceable. But the other picture, when they looked away for a second because they heard a sound, you know, or they scratched an itch or something happened mm-hmm. that was real and, and that even the picture might be a little looser, you look at it. You know, you, you see somebody standing looking at a piece of art, you know, and I, I've done a bunch of pictures in institutions. The way they're standing, you can sense that they're really looking and that they're thinking about, they're in dialogue or in relationship to the people around them. So it's not just a matter of just dropping there. You, you, the moments have to still be real, you know, and it's, uh, that's where the editing comes in. So being trying to, to really control and be strong about the pictures that you think uh, are still inscribed with that, that, that snap, that something yeah. that, that made you excited, that's the moment as opposed to, if you look at the picture, and you think it could have been made 10 seconds later or 10 seconds before it probably doesn't have that vitality and that credibility. And I phys- you know I like, I hate tri- I have everything has to keep moving. So many times on jobs there'll be you know often when you you get an assignment there's uh, a deck. Here's here's the 15 pictures that we need to make and this one needs to right. be that and she needs to be looking this way and this and it's the back that's important here so on and so forth. And you, and you deliver those, but what happens is sometimes, okay, we got that. Let's just walk across the street and go over to here. And then while they're walking across the street, you make another picture that nobody Mm -hmm. asked for. And then that's the one that everybody, you know, this, this wonderful project I did for Nordstrom's, that was such a a joy to do. There were multiple moments like that where we invested half an hour doing a picture. That was the picture we wanted to make. And then I just had them walk over to another spot to do a version of it. And in that moment of passing, of these three girls crossing the street, that picture was the one that everybody responded to. And it's that it's that attention of a street photographer who always believes there's another good one to be had. Do you know what I mean? Don't put the camera down because just because, you know, on assignments all the time, you know, just that's it, we're done. And then that's when I get really excited.
0: Yeah. Because no, usually absolutely. people just
1: pause, you know, and then like, oh, and then boom, 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 boom. And then again, and I have so many times where that's happened.
0: Yeah, because when I looked at those that those that those that Nordstrom collection on your website, I really got the feel of that. Because at first I was like, "Wait, is this? Is this? Oh, this is not posed." It was just like, and then I saw that this they were the same models. I was, like, "Oh, but it doesn't feel like that." And I thought it was, yeah. I thought it was great. And yeah, well, I really, it's the
1: lived experience, right? You want it's like, listen, we're just out here on a good day in New York, and you're gorgeous and you're gorgeous, and you don't need to do a thing. I mean, you look great, and the clothes are great. Let's just see how we can, you know, a big part of my prompts on the street, uh, I'll see something that's the inciting incident, the thing that mm-hmm. I'm attracted to. It could be a single person. It could be somebody lying down on steps. And, and this is very much something that I, I feel uh, came from working with Joel. So you see that first thing that you respond to, but just forget about it. Push it to the side of the frame. Keep it in the picture. Yeah. But now look for something else. Open your heart to the next thing. And see if you can get just as excited about that as that first thing, but keeping the other thing still in there. So it's the juggling, right? Okay, you know that that's pay dirt. You stick that that girl, that guy, that thing anywhere in the frame, it will be discovered by your viewer the same way you discovered it walking down, you know, 3rd Avenue and 14th Street. But now look for something else. So always having that background in play, you know?
0: That's the question I always ask myself when I have that experience. Is like, what else is there? You know, right. How really, can what, how can
1: you add? Give me an, what's next, right? Because it's there, I got that. But
0: mm-hmm. what
1: now? What now? What? How can I put that in a context, right? The same way it was in a context when you discovered it, to try and be just as generous and to have it be in a context in your actual photograph.
0: And that's in, and that goes back to the very thing we were talking about before about going from simply documenting something to be able to use those things to sort of express it. It's it's understanding that there are other elements that exists within the scene and then it's like okay here you have these different pieces how do you want to put them together and it's unlike a a jigsaw puzzle in which everything has its proper place this is completely subjective and it's like whatever you want to put together and whatever relationship you want to bring that's you being expressive that's you having a point of view that's you having a voice yep uh, well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend a photographer, and it could be anyone, someone you've long admired, or someone you've recently discovered. So who would the photographer be and why?
1: Well, I mentioned Elizabeth Bick earlier. I think that she's a, a wonderful photographer, and she's also somebody that kind of straddles this sort of street photography world with other types of practices. Mm-hmm. Um and I think, you know, she's, she did this great kind of three-volume book with Roman numerals that's quite interesting. She's somebody who I'm paying a lot of attention to and I enjoy looking at. And then there's uh, some younger folks too. Brian Carlson, uh, who's uh, at voyeur1 is his Instagram ha- handle. He's another person who I call him uh, one of the strongest sidewalk surrealists out there. You know, wow. his, his practice, it very much transforms. Uh, it, it, it makes you believe that there's a place that looks like the paintings of Magritte, you know, where it's night in one moment and uh, day in another part. Um, and then the, the other one would be, who's in that same vein, is uh, Horolibus Creodacus, whose uh, Dirty Harry is his handle. He's also in uh, uh, a member of uh, UP as well. And uh, he's another one of these kind of people where he, he, he largely photographs in Crete, also did a book on New York, but but it's so different than my own practice. It's a total you know, he and I will go for a walk and what he comes back with, you'd think we were in different continents because the visual language is so different, but the poetic truth and the ambitions of all three of these uh, artists, uh, I feel a great kindred spirit with. And I think that's something I think is really strong is finding people that you respond to who don't make work that looks like you want to make, but that communicates what you want to communicate
0: amen to that thank you so much man i really enjoyed this
1: likewise it's a pleasure to be here and uh you know i'm so glad that 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 we could do this and i hope we get to be in the same state at some point soon
0: thanks to gus for joining us find out more about him and his work by visiting guspowell.com and if you purchase any of his books Please use our Amazon links in the show notes, which provide you yet another way to support the show. I'll be in Washington DC for the Focus on the Story Festival in May, a Momento photographic workshop in El Paso, Texas in August, and my week-long workshop in Tokyo, Japan in December. You'll find details on all of these on our website. And if you're a devoted listener and subscribe to the show, write us a review on whatever service you listen to podcasts. Those reviews lead people to take a chance on the show and allow us to grow. Along with my recent book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow, I just released my latest ebook, Nine Pictures, Nine Stories, Volume Two. The first one got a great response and I'm back with a follow-up where I discuss the stories behind nine images that I created last year. It's only $8 and your purchase is another way to support the show purchase that or any of my previously published ebooks by visiting the website you can also subscribe to our youtube channel and our mailing list on the youtube channel i offer critiques on images submitted by tcf listeners like you while the mailing list keeps you updated with all tcf events including workshops and more sign up today and remember you can support the show by contributing to our patreon effort or donating through paypal Thanks to Debbie Arluck, Cesar Zuniga, and Glenn DeCroco for their recent contributions. It means so much. And if you found that you can't find every episode of the show, download the Candor Frame app, which is available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin MacLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is ebody and this is The Candid Frame.